I want to read Romans 7. I want to read verses 7 through 25 this morning. But I want to break it up into two distinct parts. So if you're here this morning, try to view this portion of Scripture, verses 7 through 25 of Romans chapter 7. You've got your Bible, you opened it up, you see that, you see verse 7, you can see all the way down, maybe it's on the next page, you can turn over there and you can see it goes all the way to 25. Now what I want to do is I want to take that chunk of Scripture and I want to read it this morning. But I want to break it up into two very distinct sections. And I'm going to read the first section first. First section, verses 7 through 13. And as we read this first part, these first seven verses, ask yourselves this question. Is Paul describing himself before or after he became a Christian? Just ask yourself that as we read the first seven verses. What then shall we say? Verse 7, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I, and here's the man we want to consider, I would not have known sin. Now the first verse there give us a whole lot of clue. But let's keep going. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So we, we don't have a good idea yet. It could be either. But verse 8 begins to give us some things we can sink our teeth into. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So here's the question. Sin is in this guy. It's using the law against him to produce all sorts of covetousness. Is Paul... Christian or not a Christian? Now, then he says, Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So, this guy is in the place where the commandment is death to him. Is he saved? Verse 11, for sin, now this is, this is the guy, sin in him that is doing something here. It's seizing an opportunity through the commandment to deceive him and through it to kill him. Verse 12, so the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sin is producing death in this guy. In these first seven verses, sin is producing death in this guy. Is he saved? If you say yes, Paul is saved here, you have a very strange definition of what it means to be saved. Of course Paul's describing himself before he was converted. Sin is at work in him. It's stirring up all sorts of covetousness. Sin is at work in him, killing him. No one really questions whether Paul is a Christian or not in these texts. Because it's just so clear that he is not a Christian. We, we pretty, probably everybody in here agrees. It's not really uh, a point of, of great issue. Generally, 
I, I don't know of any commentator that has ever written on that section of Scripture and determined that the, the man described there is a Christian. No one really questions this because it's just so clear. But now we come to the next portion, verses 14 through 25, where it is not so clear. At least historically, it hasn't been. Now listen as I read these. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do do what I want, but I do everything I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, the law is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sin's bad. That's the problem here, folks. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability. Notice that. He doesn't say sometimes I don't have the ability. He says not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. Now folks, I have been attempting to persuade you that the famous Roman 7 man described in Romans 7, 14 through 25, is Paul as a lost man. A lost man under conviction, definitely, but nevertheless a lost man. This morning I'm going to emphasize this truth to you in another way. Now, brethren, I'm not done today with this. I, I still want to look at the mind of this guy. And I want to begin to flow into eight and still deal with this and attach this and tie this into eight. So I intend to linger here. But oh, folks, I have a reason to do this. I want to emphasize to you this morning this truth in another way. Because folks, I know this. We are generally convinced that verses 7 through 13, the seven that I read describe Paul when he's lost. But what I want you to see is that the Paul described in the later section in seven through or in 14 through 25 in the second part I read is this very same Paul described in the first verses I read. I want you to see it's one and the same man. And I am lingering here because this is so vital to our Christian life. The more I look at this, the more I study this, the more I am persuaded for the health and the vitality, for the spiritual victory of our church. We need to have a proper understanding of this. 
And so I want to try to come at this from various ways. Now listen, I make this point not simply to be different from others. Now there are others who agree with this, but there are some that disagree with this. There's no question. I don't want to unnecessarily stir up debate. I do this first because I believe it's true, and I do it secondly, folks, because I'm convinced that a faulty view of Romans 7 is dangerous to you and to this church. Let me make myself absolutely clear. I believe that viewing the man in Romans 7, 14 through 25 is harmful. So God helping me, I want to show you once again that He is lost. I know, some of you are convinced of this already. Some of you are leaning towards accepting this. But after all, this is new to your thinking. And it does take some consideration and some wrestling with this. There are one or two of other you, others out there. You probably agree with this. But listen, listen to me. Brothers, sisters... Keep listening. Be teachable. Be humble. Prayerfully examine everything I say by the Word of God. By God's great trust that will lead you and me and us as a church into dip, deeper and richer and more victorious truth. So, here's what I want to do. To get your minds cranking this morning. I broke up our text into two distinct sections. First seven verses, 7 through 13, and then the last verses, 14 through 25. I broke them up into two distinct groups. Now, what I am proposing to you guys is that when we go from the first part to the second part, Paul doesn't all of a sudden jump in there and introduce us to his newborn again self. But he's rather talking about the same guy he's been talking about all along. Himself under conviction, the law has come, but yet he is still not saved. And what I want to do is I want to compare the two sections. This isn't a new guy in verse 14. It's the same guy. And if it is, then we ought to be able to compare the first section to the second section and find that it's the same guy, right? If it, if it is indeed Paul in the same time frame in his life before his conversion, then what's true in the first part had better be true about the second part, right? We ought to be able to look at both men and find out, yes, they are indeed one and the same man. There isn't any difference about them. Because see, if we find that there are vast differences, between the first guy and the second guy, well, then we conclude that Paul is at a different stage in his life. But if there are no differences, if it is indeed the same man, and it isn't some new guy being introduced to us in verse 14, it's the same guy, then uh, this is the guy who has the law come to him. He comes under conviction. Remember... What Christ said to him, you're kicking against the goads or against the pricks. He was under that conviction, but it's before Christ met him on that Damascus road. And he came 
to be converted. Okay, so if we're going to compare them, which is what I want to do, let's first look at the first part. And very specifically, look at Romans 7, 9. Folks, I want you to really see what's happening with the man in Romans 7, 9. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. Now don't forget, we're making a comparison. We're going to look at this man here in verse 9, and then we're going to compare it. So, Pay very close attention to what this guy is like. So, in verse 9, we find that once Paul was alive, there was a time in his life he was basically undisturbed about his sin. What was He was in Pharisee. You know, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. This guy is, what did he say? Above his brethren, he pursued these things. I mean, he was into the traditions. He was into the law. He was into, when it came to being a Jew, he was a Jew among Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This guy was learned. He knew the Old Testament. He felt like things were great. He knew the law. He tried to keep it. It came to the law. He was blameless, he tells us in Philippians 3. This guy was cruising through life. He was so positive, just like my wife when she was lost. So positive, she was on her way to heaven. Nobody could have convinced him different. He, of all people, was on the fast path to heaven. He was alive, folks. This guy was self-confident. He was sure of himself. He... Folks, this guy felt like he was full of strength. He felt he was good. Yeah, there was sin there. He was full of it. But you know what? He was blind to it. He was confident. This, there was no trouble. There was no difficulty. As far as he knew, his sails were full. He was getting blown right on into the kingdom. I mean, there, there's, there was no question. He was spiritually alive in his own estimation. No consciousness of sin. No consciousness of condemnation or being in, in a, a position of being a slave. And you know what? That, that's how most people are. They're in trouble, folks. But there's no perception of it. That's how he was. That's how he was. But one day, one day, that commandment, thou shall not covet. It hit him square between the eyes and God suddenly opened his eyes and he saw it for what it was and he recoiled. Folks, this guy's not congratulating himself anymore. He says in verse 9 there, the commandment, what happened? Sin came alive and I died. He had sight of himself as he never had before. It was true all along, but he'd been missing it, the fullness of it. And then one day his eyes are open. The commandment came to power. And the thing about it is, some might look at this and say, well, yeah, when the law comes to power to people, it, it wipes sin out. That's not what happened. When this law came in power to him, sin came alive. It didn't kill sin. It didn't eradicate sin. It made it come alive. The law irritated Paul's sin. Before that sin kind of slept, 
He didn't know it was there. He was confident. He felt healthy. Sin was asleep. But now the law has come and it's just, it's like gone down there, taken that, that sleepy sin and just rattled it and shit. It's alive now and it's mad. It's hopping mad. It doesn't, it's stirring up all sorts of covetousness in Paul. It said, thou shalt not covet. Now I can't do anything but covet. This thing has popped to such life. The law's prohibitions just come down on him and sin is all aroused. It's disturbed. It's shaken. And he says, I died. I died. Paul suddenly realized he was undone. He was complete wretchedness. He was weakness. He was helplessness. There was utter hopelessness in it. I mean, these things were true about him before. The main thing is, folks, he just had no perception of it. All of a sudden, the law came alive and his eyes had been opened. And he is in a position. He is not sure of himself like he was before. He feels nothing but, but that he can't achieve anything. Empty. His self-confidence is gone. Self-satisfaction, gone. Self-reliance, it's gone, folks. He wasn't concerned before. He was boasting. But now he is not boasting. He's alarmed. He's troubled. He's unhappy. He has now had such a view of the law that he knows that he has never done anything in any way towards the true keeping of it. He thought he had. But now he realizes otherwise. He sees the holiness of God, the holiness of the law. And in contrast, he's caught sight of this terrible evil inside himself. This evil power that is arousing by using the law and it's killing him by using the law. He's come face to face with the fact that he is weak and impotent and helpless and without strength and without life. Okay? That's the man from 7-9. So we want to compare that with what we find in verses 14 through 25. Because if the guy in verse 9 is the same guy in verses 14 through 25, then guess what better be true? about the guy in verses 14 through 25. We better find the man there to be a man who is just like the man from verse 9. And what is the man from verse 9 like? He is a man that is aware that sin is alive. It isn't just that sin is alive. It's that he is painfully aware that it is alive. That's important. It is alive. But he sees it. His eyes have been opened. He recognizes that sin is active. He's awake to sin's power. He's conscious that sin dominates him and that he has no power to do anything about it. He says sin came alive. This is what the man in verse 9 is like. So we better find the man in Romans 7.14 and following to be a living example of sin being alive if indeed it's the same guy, right? Because that's what the guy in verse 9 is like. Well, is this what we find to be true of the man in Romans 7.14 and following? Is that what we find to be true? Is the guy in the second section here, in 14 through 25, is he just exactly like the guy in verse 9? 
this is exactly what we find. Sin is so alive in this guy, it virtually jumps out at us at every single verse. With a man in Romans 7.9, sin is alive. With a man in Romans 7.14, sin is alive. This is so clear we hardly even need to think about it. Look at Romans 7.14. This guy says, I am sold under sin. If you're sold under sin, you belong to it. It owns you. It's your master. It dominates you. Sin isn't dead. It's very alive. Think about 719. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. This guy keeps on. You look at his life and what does he do? He just keeps on doing evil. He keeps on. It doesn't matter that in his mind he has some comprehension of the law and that he'd like to be conformed to that law. It's that no matter how much law he knows, he just keeps on and keeps on and keeps on doing evil. Sin is so alive that this man can't do anything else but do evil. It doesn't abate. Sin is alive. It shows itself to be alive by its constant activity. The sin that dwells in him is so alive, it's making him do what he doesn't want to do all of the time. He just keeps on doing evil. Now, folks, don't, don't you ever say that this is describing a person who occasionally fails, who sometimes fails. If you say that, you're adding your own ideas right into this text. You are adding them because there is no hint of it here. Everything about this man is that he keeps on. If you have the NAS, it says he practices evil. That's what the word means. It is a continuing indulgence, overwhelmed with, practicing, carrying out. This isn't the Christian occasionally slipping. This isn't the Christian who falls and then rises again. This is the man who does nothing but perpetually do what he does not want to do. He is perpetually doing the evil that is crouching there close to him. He does nothing but practice this. If you say otherwise, you definitely are reading something into this text it doesn't say. Folks, read it at face value. Sin is alive with unbroken, uninterrupted activity. So we see the man in Romans 7, 9 experiences and recognizes that sin is alive and the man in Romans 14 and following likewise experiences and recognizes that sin is very much alive within him. This brings me to the second thing. What was the second thing we saw in 7, 9? Paul said, I died. I died. Now picture this. You have sin that is very much alive and Paul who has died. That which is alive is that which has strength. It has power. It has movement. It has activity. While that which is dead is powerless. It has no strength. It is impotent. If I put a living person next to a dead body, folks, the living person can go over and they can kick the dead man. They can jump up and down on the dead man. And throw the dead man around. We can pretty much do whatever we desire with the dead man. And the body can do nothing to resist what the living man does to it. Nothing. He can subject that body to whatever he desires. So here's sin. 
very much alive with Paul who is dead. And sin is having its way with him. And he can't resist it. It's roughshod over him. It beats him up. He can't resist it. It forces him to and to multiply sin. And even though he has a desire maybe to do something different, he can't shake it. This thing is overpowering him. He is dead. Sin is alive. Sin clearly in Romans 7, 14 through 25 is that which is dominating. And he can't do anything, even with all of his desires, even with all of his knowledge of the law, even as much as he says he wants to keep it, he can't do it. He is overwhelmed by it. He is the dead man. Sin is the living one. And you can show me nothing in this text that shows that Paul is alive. Nothing. Because he has no power. This man has no spiritual ability to conquer sin. He can't get out of its clutches. He can't move away from it. It is beating up. It is kicking him. It's throwing him around. And he is at its whim. He is mastered by it. He has been sold as a slave to it. Folks, this is what we find. He says in Romans 7, 23, he's captive to the law of sin that dwells in his member. Members. Paul is captive. Sin is alive. It is strong. It has Paul in its grips. And he can't break free. He's dead. There's no strength in him. All he can do is cry out, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And he can't deliver himself. Because he's not, got no ability. Now, does that sound like the guy back in Romans 6 that is told, don't let sin reign? You know what the assumption there is? In Romans 6, 12, when, that, when Christians are told, don't let sin reign, the assumption is, you have been given power of God to not let it reign. This man here has no power to not let it reign. He's being kicked by it, and he can't do anything. He can't deliver himself from its clutches. Now, brethren... Not only is the guy in Romans 7, 14 through 25, exactly like the guy in 7, 9, but the guy in 14 through 25 is exactly unlike the Christian that has been portrayed to us in Romans 6. Totally unlike him. Absolutely unlike him. Folks, let me ask you this question. Is the man in Romans 7, 14 continuing in sin? Does he continue in sin? I mean, I don't know how we can put it any more clearly. Romans 7.19 says, The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It doesn't matter what this man wants to do in his mind. That's not the issue. That's never the issue. Rick was over the other night. He was telling us about how when he was lost, in his mind, he purposed to stay with his family. He said, there's something about that Saturday night fever. That's the believe thing. Well, you know what there is about Saturday night fever? It's sin reigning in the lost man. As much as he might have determined, he said, he sat there, he was all fidgety. All he wanted to do was run out that door. Sin dominated. It doesn't matter that for certain reasons we want to do something different in our mind. Sin is going to control. And it just results in a continuation of sin. And I see Rick never broke that. That was never broken in his life until the night he laid in bed and God came upon him and saved his soul. Folks, 
the man in Romans 7 is continuing in sin. It says, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. In Romans 6.1, Paul asks the question, do we continue in sin? Do we? That's the question. May never be. The man in Romans 7.19 clearly does continue in it. But Paul says, by no means does a Christian continue in sin. Why? How can we who died to sin still live in it? And Paul's answer is, we can't. The man in Romans 7.19 is living in it. That's all he keeps on doing. This is totally contrary to the picture Paul gives us in Romans 6 of the Christian life. 6.14 says that sin will have no dominion over you. If you are a Christian, this isn't perfection. But this is a life where righteousness is the norm. Where doing good and right and offering up your members to God as instruments of righteousness is the rule and standard of life. Not perfectly, but consistently in such a manner that it is clear God has dominion in your life and not sin. That is the issue. There must be a consistent evidence that God has made you obedient from the heart to the Word of God in such a way that you're consistently bearing fruit for God. But the man in Romans 7.14 is not like that. He's of the flesh. He's sold under sin. There is nothing in Romans 7 man that gives us any indication that he bears fruit for God. There is nothing there about occasionally failing. There is nothing about sin not having dominion. Rather, Romans 7.14 is all about sin that is dominating. It is holding Paul captive. Christians don't continue in sin, but the Roman 7 man persists constantly in sin. Okay. Why do we go through this? Because there's something at stake. If I told you in the beginning, I believe that this is dangerous and harmful to take the Roman 7 man as a Christian, why do I believe that? Listen, here's what's at stake. I know I'm making a big deal out of this, but there's a reason. Listen to me. Open your Bibles if you haven't already. Look at Romans 6.11. Romans 6.11 says, Christian, you must consider yourself dead to sin. Paul is saying being dead to sin is something you need to consider to be true, to be a reality. Being dead to sin is a reality to the Christian. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. This is the real world. This is the certainty of the Christian life. He doesn't say that Romans 7 is the reality and being dead to sin is only a dream. If you have been justified from your sins, you are dead to sin. This couldn't be clear. You have died to sin, therefore your relation to sin has forever been severed from what it was before. You can never go back to the way it was before. The mastery, the slavery, the dominion of sin are forever brought your death to it. Now why is this so relevant to us all? Why is this so critical? Here it is, folks. This, I've said everything I've said to come down to these last few points to drive home. 
If you are united to Christ by faith and died to sin, been set free from sin, there is a kind of victorious life that flows out of being dead to sin. There is. Not a Romans 7 life. The victorious life that flows out of being dead to sin is the only kind of life that leads to eternal life. There is no other. You can clearly see this in Romans 6. Look with me. Romans 6.22 Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end? Eternal life. Okay, do you see what the end here is? Eternal life. Back up one step. What is it that ushers us into eternal life? Sanctification. What is it that leads to sanctification? The fruit we bear for God. Back up again. Where does the fruit for God come from? Being a slave of God. And you're not a slave of God unless you back up one step free from sin. You see the flow? Free from sin, slave to God, fruit for God, sanctification leads to eternal life. Romans 7, 14 through 25, you have nothing about being free from sin, only being captive to it. You have nothing about being slaves of God, but being sold as a slave to sin. You have nothing about sanctification, only the continual practicing of evil. And you have nothing about eternal life, only the cry, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So if you say the Romans 7, 14 man is a Christian, you are saying that the Characteristic of the Christian is exactly opposite to what God says they are. You are saying that you can be of the flesh, captive to sin, sold as a slave to sin, bear evil fruit, and that all leads to eternal life. This is what you're saying if you say this describes Paul when Paul was saved and on his way to heaven. That's exactly what you're saying. The other thing that is at stake here is this. In Romans 6, Paul does not draw the conclusion that our sanctification is mechanical, our fighting sin is automatic, just because of our death and resurrection with Christ. He does not say, since you've all died to sin in Christ and are alive to God in Him, there's no need for you to fight or do battle with sin. He does not say you died to sin, so you automatically serve God. No need for effort. That's not what he says. Instead, he says in verse 12, let not... Christian, you are commanded here. You are commanded. Do not let sin reign. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. You must resist its efforts to make you obey God's passions. You are to fight resist the reign of sin in your mortal bodies. Remember this. Does Paul prepare to do battle? He's first concerned that we think and consider and believe rightly. 
Before we ever fight right, we must think right. Look at verse 11. Before you get to 12, he gives us 11. So you also must consider, do you see that word consider? You must think right. You must believe right. You must believe. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have died to sin, so consider yourselves dead to sin. You are, and you need to know you are. So now strive to living to live according to what you know you are. We must lay hold on that reality of what has happened to us in our union with Christ and confirm it in our daily lives by living like it. Christian, you will only fight well when you believe well. This is the foundation for all our against sin and all our progress in holiness. But do you realize what you do when you start thinking that the Romans 7 guy is a Christian? Do you realize what happens to this whole process? Do you realize the implications? Whenever someone believes that in Romans 7 Paul is speaking about himself as a saved man, they are saying that it is normal for Paul the Christian to be of the flesh, sold under sin, practicing evil, captive to the law of sin, and a wretched man. And if you say that's normal for Paul as a Christian, guess what the next conclusion is? It's normal for me as a Christian. And if you say that, you come to that point and you begin to make that assumption, then you're saying, I am of the flesh. I am sold under sin. I practice evil. I'm captive to the law of sin. I'm a wretched man. That's what you say. But folks, we are told to resist the battle. Or resist sin in the battle. Do you guys see what happens? Paul comes along in Romans 6, 11. And he says, if you're going to fight sin right, you better think yourself dead to it. You better know yourself dead to it. That is the only way you are going to be successful. But if your approach is that Paul was a Christian, then you're going to conclude, as a Christian, I'm like the guy in Romans 14. And so what happens? Your whole thinking you're not considering yourself dead to sin. You're considering yourself, oh, wretched man that I am. You walk around defeated. It happens. Paul is certain of this. The way you think is going to determine how you fight. It is. And if you think, oh, I'm sold under sin, I'm of the flesh, captive to sin, wretched man that I am, and you walk around that way, look what happens. You've just disarmed the very faith and confidence that Paul meant for you to have in writing chapter 6. Your faith drives the fight. If you believe you're just a bundle of failure, you're going to live like it. But if you believe sin will not have dominion and you consider yourselves dead to the power of sin, you will fight according to that confidence. Verse 11 says we've got to ponder, consider, ponder, reckon, calculate, take into account, think, evaluate, reflect all on this reality that we are dead to sin by our union with Christ. 
It doesn't say ponder your wretchedness. It doesn't say ponder your inability. Ponder how powerful sin is in your life. It doesn't say ponder being of the flesh. Ponder being sold under sin. So, folks, someone has gone terribly wrong here. Brethren. Brethren. We Americans, as it is, are by and large soft, pathetic, and lazy in the fight against sin. That's just reality. I mean, we are soft. We are soft in the way we live, and it results in our softness towards fighting sin. We have to have the temperature just right. We have to have the air conditioning just right. We have to have the food at the right temperature, the drink at the right temperature. We, we are babies in so many ways. We are soft. The last thing we weak American Christians need on top of all this is a mindset that we can never do what we want and that we're captive to sin. If you think that way, you are in violation of Romans 6.11. You are disobeying God's Word. You are. Is this major? This is major, folks. You know why this is major? I want this church to be fighting sin. And you will never fight sin with the aggressiveness, with the fear, with the intensity that you need to fight it you think right and consider yourselves dead to sin. And if you consider yourself to be like the man in Romans 7, 14 through 25, you are not considering that. You are considering something that is not true about yourself. And you will continue to live a defeated life. And it's no surprise because what you believe will dictate how you live. And that's why I'm spending the time to focus on this. Yes, it's important to see the the real reason behind why Paul wrote Romans 7, 14 through 25. He's defending the law, but showing its weakness and showing that when law meets flesh, all it does is produce sin. Vindicates the law, but shows it to be weak and shows sin to be the real problem. If, if you guys will, will study the text and find out that in verse 13, the issue is not whether Christians sin or not. The issue is... What kills us? The man in 14 through 25 is under death and the question being posed is not whether he's a Christian. The question being posed is what kills him. Is it law or is it sin? If you will read it, study it, ponder it slowly, prayerfully, in that light, you will see that I am absolutely correct in making that observation. Oh, beloved, I want this church to be victorious over sin. You are dead to it. Fight like you are. Live up to the reality of what you are in Christ Jesus. Live up to the reality of what God meant for you to be in giving us Romans 6. Amen. And amen. You're dismissed.